So you know what's been the insanity in my life? Like, tell me, Demir. The whole—I mean, everyone's been been going through this this whole uh, coronavirus business, and that's been the main insanity in, in their lives. I don't think I mentioned this in previous episodes, but part of the reason why we recorded your place, uh, however many weeks ago that was, uh, had everything to do with the fact that my kitchen was completely gutted. Yeah. Because of just like, you know, water damage and a burst pipe behind there, like from the eighth floor down. And so I've been back now at my place, what, two weeks or so, and still it's a mess and I'm still sort of getting it back in shape. But I got an email yesterday, uh, that like another pipe burst in my building, if you can imagine that. And they had to turn off the water yesterday. And then like most of the day, again, the water has been off. Oh. So I'm, I'm living, you know, despite all the other, the, the other insanities of, of, uh, of COVID and, uh, and, and protest world and, and, you know, this like weird sort of liminal threshold existence that we have now. Uh, I, I, I live in like this building that, that makes me feel like I'm in the Soviet Union or something like several hours a day. We don't have water. Things are just breaking. It's just, it's, it's nuts. They didn't have water in the Soviet Union. Nope. That's how we beat them. <laughs> That's in the end how we beat them. Wait. So, I mean, all, all today you didn't have like, actually there wasn't access to water. There was no running water wow. until Demira. like shortly before or <laughs> shortly after you came back. Actually, I tried to run the, the pipe when you got back. I'm, and sorry, to still- hear, I'm sorry to hear that, Demir. Yeah. That's tough. No, it's, just, it's seriously not, it's not easy. Well, I don't know. It just sort of speaks to what an insane, um, time this has been, I think, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've, I've mostly been dealing with it okay, but it's, it's, it's really disorienting. And then to have this on top, actually the, the funny paradox of it was that, that when I was dealing with that, uh, our publisher of the, the magazine graciously, he's up in, in Boston, allowed me to stay at his place, uh, while they were doing work. So I actually had like an extra sort of, um, touch of, of normalcy because I was actually, you know, I had to move to a different place and it was new and novel. So I didn't feel like I was trapped in my place the whole three months as it was happening. So I never felt quite as stir crazy as other people, but still like incredibly disoriented. Okay. Funny story. When coronavirus started, I started hearing people make reference to stir crazy. Mm. I don't know if you remember this. I tweeted something where I'm like, I have literally never heard of this phrase stir crazy before, but now all of a sudden Everyone is using it. I've never seen anything like it. I, I think that I, five different people use stir crazy with me within like three weeks of coronavirus. Did you ever find the movie? <clears throat> oh, it's, it's a movie. <laughs> it's a, it's a Gene Wilder and, uh, oh, yeah, I and think Richard you told Pryor. Me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I did not see that, but apparently it's a reference to prison. Yeah. I think that's a prison movie too. If I don't remember, I was a child when I saw it. Yeah, apparently, like apparently, I have a bunch of white friends who know a lot about prison, prison for culture. some reason. That's what white people do. They just like study prison culture through TV. Uh, but you know, I think one thing. Um, actually, never mind. <laughs> what, are you are you are you, are you self? You're censoring yourself already. See, oh, it's funny that you mentioned that. No, I like that would have not happened before. Before, yeah. There's before and there's after, yeah. Demir. I and mean, it, we used to think it was before Corona and after Corona, but it's it's broader than that. Yeah, and I, I think you know, and we don't have to talk about COVID that much because no one cares about it anymore. But I have to say, like, um, it's been one of the most striking shifts in mass perception I've ever experienced in my lifetime, and I think that 
historians and psychologists will have to, you know, study this years or decades from now and try to understand how exactly it shifted so quickly. It really felt almost like it was overnight that coronavirus was the number one issue that was dominating everything. And all of a sudden, as if in unison, people just decided to stop caring. Mm. And I'm still trying to get my head around it because even that has been disorienting for me, how people can lose interest in something so quickly. And you might say, well, it's largely because of the Black Lives Matters uh, protest, the killing of George Floyd and so on. But actually, if you look, if you look throughout the world, it seems like this is not just an American thing. Like, like a lot of the world stopped caring at exactly the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable, really. But, you know, it, I, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons why that may or may, may or may not be the case. And, uh, I know you sent me, uh, Jake Siegel's piece and tablet. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite good. And I think lots to talk about there if you want to go there. Um, but the thing that struck me about it recently, uh, was how, uh, leading up to, uh, the, the mass protests around George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, um, all of this street activism. Um, I started to feel, I refused to, refused to. Yeah, refused to, cause I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't wear a mask outdoors. It seemed, it always struck me as bizarre and like, I, I, I'm not there. Oh, I didn't know that you were that hardcore about that. I just never did. I just, I, I didn't. If I, I, I felt like if I was in a crowd, I had a responsibility not to. So if I was around people, but if I felt there was like six to, you know, 10 feet between me and the next person, which is mostly what it was like on the street. Um, no, I wouldn't. If I'm going in a store, of course I'd put it yeah, on. Yeah, sure. Um, but like, I'm not going to walk around the street in a mask, just not. Um, but I started feeling to, right before, uh, the protests that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't alone at that point. There'd be a, like a small handful of people that would walk around with masks and they'd be like, well, uh, but the, the majority started growing. And there were more and more people on the streets with masks. And I started feeling that sort of social pressure where it was like, well, I'm, I'm going to have to buckle at some point because I'm going to be like that one asshole who's, uh, I don't know if there was that one photo, I forget. I, I think they said it was, uh, someone identified him as Peter Hitchens. And I don't know what Peter Hitchens looks like, but <laughs> there's a, there's a photo of, uh, of this like white guy standing on like one of the, the high streets, maybe in Oxford as everyone takes a knee and there's just like this one white guy standing by himself. (laughs) Wait, wait, they mean Peter Hitchens as a metaphor. Cause I mean, that's actually a real person. That's Christopher Hitchens, his brother. Yeah. Yeah. So someone identified him as, as Peter Hitchens. But like the real Peter Hitchens? I don't know what Peter Hitchens looks like. So (laughs) it could have just been some English guy. And I didn't bother to look because it's Twitter and I don't really care. But no, so starting to feel that pressure of just like, well, I'm not going to be that guy. Like the one guy without a mask making a point. I'm not, I'm not that political. You know, I just, it seems sort of silly. Um, but, um, then like as soon as the protest snapped and this is, you know, this is speaking, I think to just, I think sort of the micro level of how these mores and, and habits and, and sort of social things happen. Literally now, when you walk the streets of DC, almost no one's wearing a mask outside from what I can tell, you know, like, I feel like that number's dropped off. I don't feel the pressure. There's some people that do it, but it was getting to the point yes, where definitely. joggers were, were wearing masks. I, you know? that, I always found that really, uh, that didn't make much sense to me or the classic case of the sole driver in the car wearing a mask while they're driving <laughs> never made a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's just, look, I, you know, it, it's been a, t- 
It's been a tough. I, I think that the last three, three, four months, you just put them all together. They just had this cumulative effect, and I, th- I'm personally, as I was telling you earlier, Demir, I, I don't, I don't want to say that I'm burned out, but I definitely feel a certain exhaustion. It's just been so, it's been so much, and also trying to figure out how I want to approach this moment. Cause I feel like now we have to, we have to modulate ourselves a little bit more just because, you know, we can't live like this every day being stressed about, being stressed about the world and about, um, and just debates that there's just so much to actually on debates about free speech, the New York Times debacle. And, um, I feel like I have to make decisions about how to appropriately approach this moment. And I don't know exactly how to do it. Um, and I, I don't, and we, I think that we had been talking last week about having an episode about edgelordism. Yeah. And we can maybe define that for our dear listeners in a second. Um, I actually don't know how to define it exactly. I mean, the the beauty of the word to me is that it's, it's sort one of, of those things. It's sort of self explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> edgelordism. Think about it. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Um, well, edgelordism in the concept of of sort of taking intellectual stances in social media. Let's put it that way. And I think that tells you everything we need about edgelord. I think it's like it's inching up to and being tempted by. A kind of precipice is how I, I think is the best way to define it. And it's like, you know, just sort of getting closer and closer to, to, uh, you know, towing the line. And I think one is tempted by this to this sort of pose. Um, if one gets sucked into the or takes these online debates too seriously, I think they but just wouldn't the edge would be not towing the line though. If you approach the precipice, right. That would be becoming too radical or too controversial or, or too contrarian in response to the crowd. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. you know, towing the line, right? It's you, you put your toe on the line. Oh, that's oh, the towing but, the line. So that's, that's, that's the line. It's no, like edging up right onto the line. That's interesting because towing the line is an expression, I think, also like you're towing the line, meaning that whatever the party line is, you're just going along with it. And you're not expressing your own distinctive opinions. You're towing right, the line. Right. Well, but it's still your toes on the line. You're not going over <laughs> it. So the lines that the party's put there, I think that's, I mean, I, I'll go get my OED. I don't remember, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the, that's, it comes from that. I used to think that it was towing, that you're actually, You've got a line and you're hauling it for the for the mass consensus, well, but it's are, like it's, I think it is your toe coming up on. There the line. are a lot of these expressions that if you think about them, like I don't actually know what they mean, but we just use them, right? And like so, I think there's one: the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, that's from your part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Explain it to me. That would actually be funny if it was. I, I mean, I, for maybe I doubt it though. But um, <laughs> what's another weird one? <laughs> Um, anyway, don't get don't yeah, get distracted. Yeah. We're yeah, going to oh, talk sorry, about we're going to talk about edgelordism. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I felt that because people were losing their minds, not just in social media, but like everywhere I was looking on Facebook, on Instagram, there was so much woke performant performatism or whatever, and it really started to make me nervous because this wasn't any long. It wasn't just a bunch of random people being having bad ideas, you really started to feel like this was becoming more the mainstream and it was spreading. And then there was a lot of pressure to toe the line, so to speak. And I felt myself being pushed in the opposite direction because that was worrying me so much and bothering me so much 
I, I felt tempted to be the opposite of what I didn't like. And I think that I had to make a conscious decision and say to myself, I don't want to define myself in opposition to my intellectual or ideological opponents. I don't want to just be what they are not. So I, I'm trying to be very careful about not indulging my anger or my frustration or my disappointment with the moment that we're in, because I, I know I've seen what that can do to people that they just take the up, you know, they just become the opposite. And that to me is not an, it, it's not an intellectually coherent position. I don't want to, we have to be what we are because we believe in things and not because we oppose things we don't like. Yeah. So yeah. I'm trying to be more careful about that because I don't, I don't want to turn into something that, I, that I'm not proud of or that I don't like. I don't want to feel like I'm in tension with my own being because I'm being pulled in this weird direction. I don't want to be some free speech advocate. I mean, I care about free speech, but I don't want to define myself along those terms. I don't want to be known for that. I don't want that to be my thing. Yeah. I, I think we have to be care- Yeah, so it's just like this weird back and forth I'm having with myself. Does that make sense? No, I mean, it makes sense. Um, I guess here's my question. Uh, what, what, um, what changed for you in this, uh, in this sort of set of episodes, basically? Um, because in this, in a way, I feel like I've been there where you're saying that you are right now, um, well, since the beginning of this podcast, whenever I'd complain to you about Twitter, as the generally I found myself spending way too much time on it and realizing that it was both wasting my time and uh, making me a worse person in a sense, kind of like in a way when if you like you watch, well, not exactly in the same way, a different way, but similarly to if you watch too much Curb Your Enthusiasm, you end up feel like the Overton window shifts for you because Larry David just says the most horrible things and lets his spleen vent. Like it's a, it's a similar mechanism on Twitter, but it's more reactionary. It's like, it's a reverse, it's Overton a reverse window. Larry David almost. Yeah. 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 But so, so the thing is for me though, um, what's been interesting watching all of this happen and watching you get really agitated, watching some of my other friends get very agitated about it. Um, I, I feel like I've been able to take it more in stride. Uh, and what we're talking about specifically here, to be very crystal clear, is the sort of the performative aspect of, I don't know what you want to call it. It's not just Twitter activism because um, it's impacting people's jobs at the New York Times and other publications. And, and there's a lot of sort of, you know, uh, that sort of mob uh you know, scalp hunting going on right now. And that's not something to be taken with equanimity. But nevertheless, I'm still somehow taking it with equanimity, which is, which is tied to the fact that I, I, I just don't think that, that it's not that Twitter isn't real and it's not that it doesn't have effects, but it's that it's not serious. I guess that's the only way I can put it. So in a way, and this is, we can, I, I'm happy to talk to you about the Jake Siegel piece again, because I think he gets at the same sort of thing, but none of this is serious. It's that performative aspect of it. And it's not, I'm not saying it's harmless. It's just not serious. And as a result, I don't take it as seriously. Like I, I, 
I'm perhaps even, I don't know, I don't know if I'm worried about it. I just don't take it as seriously as these people take themselves. Yeah, and I think that you're getting at something here. There's a certain kind of decadence to it that, you know, we're at this world historical moment and the stakes are high and important things are being discussed and debated. But the way people, the people, the gap between that, which is very serious and the kinds of debates that people are actually having where it's all the politics of symbolism and rhetoric and gestures. And you've talked a lot about this, Demir, that um, it, it's not, it's not real. Like if you want to be a revolutionary, be a revolutionary. And we can talk about that. But let me, one, one thing I do want to unpack because I don't know if we've talked about this part as much, but I remember last weekend, there was a part of me that was seeing where, where the protests had stopped being, there were, there weren't really much violent protests, rioting and looting had stopped and the movement had become, more like a festival, more joyous, large numbers of people, uh, wide cross section, middle class, upper class, lower class, doesn't matter, whatever. It felt like a real positive, affirmative mass movement fighting for something which I think is really important. I mean, I, I think the criminal justice system in our country has been, is absurd. I, I think that there, there are things that have to really be changed, um, at the foundational level. And I, that's where I was like, oh, I'm missing out. Like, I want to be at this protest. I want to feel what these people are feeling because they're fighting for something which is meaningful. And there were results where different city councils, cities, states were announcing reforms and making real changes on the police force. I mean, I actually think the criminal justice side and the prison system is more at the core of a lot of this. But still, it was these were positive changes and th there was a part of me that was like, here I am getting angry about um, limitations and on free speech and how these woke warriors, whatever you want to call them, are attacking people who don't go along with the new woke consensus. And I'm like, I feel that is real and I'm angry about that, but maybe that is an acceptable price if if the outcome is getting real changes to address these systemic issues and improve people's lives, um, black lives, but also any, you know, but also more broadly, anyone who's affected by police abuse. And I felt almost in a sense that I was on the wrong side of history, that I was being almost a little bit stubborn, you know, insisting on free inquiry and truth and debate and maybe I was missing the plot and I'm just being open. I, I haven't really said this on Twitter and, you know, I'm really just saying it for the first time to, to people who will be listening. And I wondered if I had gotten the mix wrong, that I had somehow misjudged the moment. And sometimes people would say to me, Shadi, read the room. You might be right, but read the room, which bothered me because it's like. Your brother said this too, because you said it on the yeah, but a couple podcasts. Yeah, yeah, other but also other people well. were saying like, Shadi, read the room, man. But I'm like, okay, but do I, I know what the room, I know what the room is, but if what I'm saying is right and correct and it's inherently true or worth saying, do, do I have to read the room before I say something that I believe to be true? So I was also a little bit confused and I almost felt like I was being gaslit. 
And I started, I started to wonder like what, you know, we, we can, you know, what is truth? What does it mean to be right? And I guess like what I came to is that, you know, there are conflicting principles that are in tension and in conflict with each other. And this is more the way that I see the New York Times um, crisis that happened. I mean, not to go into that too much because people have talked about it endlessly and it's gotten a little bit lame. But I think that there is a tension between people who see their goal in life as exact, exacting changes in the system and pushing for them through advocacy and activi- activism. And I think that some New York Times journalists, they want to change things and make them better in these specific ways. And they think that journalism and the platform of the New York Times is a means to a particular end, right? Where I see another set of principles that are worth committing to are free inquiry, the the so-called cliched marketplace of ideas, and giving people you disagree with platforms, even if you don't like those ideas. Those are intention. And I can understand if someone's number one goal in life is ending police abuse, is, 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 is reforming, um, uh, police on the local level and they want to actually see changes in this very tangible way, then maybe you have to sacrifice from their standpoint. If I'm, if we're just following along with their principles and what they're prioritizing, then maybe it's a worth for them. It's a worthwhile trade-off to say um, being being a platform for different ideas that has to be sacrificed for the greater good of ending police abuse and improving the state of Black lives in this in this country. That if that is their calculation, I can see it. It makes me uncomfortable because I I can also see what this can lead to. Uh, you know, if, if truth can be sacrificed in the service of the greater good, obviously, you know, that can lead to problematic things. But, but uh, I don't know that that's sort of what's been percolating in my head. There is a tension here. And how do we know if we're on the right side of this? How do we know if we're, if we're doing the right calculation, the right balancing of, of what is, what is worth fighting for and what is worth sacrificing? Um, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? No, what no, 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 no. I just don't know where, where to, where to approach it. But, uh, no, I, I mean, they don't share, I guess what I'm, part of what I'm saying is, I, these, I, let's these, start, start like this, Shadi. I think that like different people have different roles. I think that's what we're losing here. Um, I, I, I think if there's something that's to be bemoaned in this, but it's something that's never was found great expression in this country, I think, is, uh, that proper British stereotype of a journalist of like a drunken, drunken cynic who is really out there to just screw the powerful mm. and just do that. You know, maybe what is it? Afflict the, the powerful, comfort the poor, something, whatever in any case, but like, <laughs> But, 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 you know, it's the powerless. It's, it's stand on the side of the powerless against, if you want, that's, that's like journalistic activism that seems right, which is, you know, you, you sort of array yourself around these sorts of things. And, but in that case, it's not to affect, like the line needs to be somewhere about like, it's not so much affect social change. You leave that to the activists and the politicians. 
But you show up the police brutality and report on that and like shine a, shine a light on police brutality and shine a light on, on incarceration and shine a light on the cycles of poverty and, and all of that. But, but leave the, leave the marching to others. I think that to me is, is, is the simple line. And you saw in the last week, I think Axios and a couple other publications said that they're now allowing journalists to go participate in protests and stuff like that. That seems to me like an unhelpful line. I don't think it's, it's some sort of huge collapse. Um, because I mean, I have a, you know, a, a broader sort of feeling about the press in America, which is everything you said. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, it, it's also tied up to, I think a very American idea of the role of the press in society which is that they are, that they are actually grappling with something called the truth. And I think that's actually an unhelpful myth. Um, it's, it, it's kind of healthier. I think that the New York Times becomes the left wing New York Times, kind of like the left wing guardian. And, uh, the Wall Street Journal becomes, you know, uh, a right wing paper, which it also is, even though the news side's not that right wing. Wait, but isn't the Guardian already the left wing? That's what I'm saying. And the Brit, the Brits have that set. Like the Brits have the Telegraph on the right, and yeah. and the Guardian, and and you know, it's it's. So, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I'm not weeping too much about the New York Times revealing itself to be what it is, and I, I feel like that's part of why I haven't been that moved. I was, I was really, I think it was handled incredibly shabbily that you know a young staffer was basically railroaded as part of that, and that speaks to the tragedy of what happens when management completely loses control to a peasant revolt, and like nothing good comes from a peasant revolt, and that's what that was. It was disgusting. Um, but uh, overall, I'm not that perturbed about the New York Times going left and the opinion pages. Now, okay, I saw Ross Douthat's, you know, uh, heartfelt column really analyzing it from his perspective. You know, and before uh, Bennett got got railroaded himself and, and uh, the publisher also, you know, uh, had to reverse himself – they all did say, you know, they did the the standard liberal thing. You know, we need, we stand for an open marketplace of ideas, and everyone needs to be heard. Yeah, and they shouldn't. Yeah, but you know what? Like, I, that's 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 a nice aspiration. But I don't think they the don't New York Times. To, yeah. The New York Times doesn't have to. With the existence of the internet, you really don't have to. Now, it's it's a myth that everyone reads the New York Times, and everyone reads the New York Times to get a broad scope of of reviews. That's of views. That's patently untrue. You know, like, and quite frankly, you know, I, I think the, the New York Times conservatives also are not really, again, it's been pointed out before Ross himself. There's not a single Trump's, Trump voting, yeah. uh, conservative. Which I, yeah, would. And it's like, you know, so, okay, great. So you have this like weird little Upper West Side conservative New York ghetto in the New York Times. Everyone pats themselves for some sort of broad, spectrum of ideas. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. But, but the New York Times could have played a role where it challenged mostly liberal left readers to help them contend with other viewpoints and to expose them to those viewpoints. Because if they only read the New York Times, this is probably the only place they could listen to a dissenting conservative voice, but also to give the best version of what a conservative argument is. So people can actually, I know that probably sounds lame and naive and all that, but that's why I wanted the New York Times to have one explicitly Trump supporting columnist because what is the best version? <laughs> well, I guess that could be, I don't know what the best version of Trumpism is, but a more compelling version of it by someone who is smart and not completely dogmatic, that could have been helpful for those people. That's one thing. But also me as, me as a reader, 
I literally have nowhere to go. Well, this is more on the news side. If I want to get, I know straight news, what is that? Is there such thing as straight news? But if I want to get something that pretends to be straight news so I can get a, a sense of what's going on in the world in a kind of an overview sort of way, there is now no place I can really go to because I feel like the New York Times news articles have been increasingly slanted and distort my understanding of the world. First of all, their obsession with Russia Gate, with Trump, everything is seen through the prism of Trump. Their coronavirus coverage, especially in retrospect, I think was sometimes misleading and opportunistic and so on. So I don't, I don't really have a place to go. And this is one thing I've always, like, if we want to actually know the way things are, Without spin, it's actually very hard to know where to go, especially on things where there are two completely different narratives and you don't even know what reality is. On coronavirus, there's been, there were, when it was actually happening, when we actually cared, it was really hard to take a step back and be like, here is a reasonable approach which tries to understand the different approaches and scientific judgments but there ended up being nowhere I could really trust because everything had a slant. That ideally would have been what the New York Times could offer, that Americans who are just like normal and don't know where else to go, they go on the New York Times homepage in the morning and they get a, a not a perfect overview, but at least an overview that aspires to some comprehensiveness. And I don't so, know where to go anymore. There well, is nowhere to go. But that's I don't not, want to be dramatic. Yeah, well, but I guess I do. You do. And it's, but it's, it's also, <laughs> it's not true. Um, it's not true in the following way. I, I've always hated when the right would go MSM, blah, blah, blah. but at the same time, it, there's always been a kernel of truth to it that, that, like even at their heyday, the New York Times represented a certain kind of worldview. Now, I think what it is is that worldview was was more aligned with you earlier, so you didn't notice it. So you said that it was just neutral. And now, again, and I blame Trump for this. I think Trump has has, has caused has caused you know with these like wild Overton shifts has shifted stuff out of whack. So so that's now gone off. That said, I you know what like. I, I guess I, I, I first grappled with this when, when Walter Mead was at the magazine and what we tried to do, uh, when Walter was with us, when we were publishing, uh, you know, his, his blog. We had staffs, you know, writing it and the rest of this. The model was, was interesting. Walter said to us, like, you know, it's, it's, um, what America doesn't have is something like, uh, what the economist is on the one hand. And it's also something what, what Henry Luce back when he was starting time also talked about. It's like, you don't have time to actually keep up with the news. We'll surface what's important of the news and contextualize it properly for you. So what we did at the magazine, we read like all the papers. And by all the papers, we mean all the U.S. papers, all the British papers. If anyone on staff had a foreign language, we'd read the foreign papers. We'd read the Indian papers. We'd read the English language Asian papers and then find articles, compile them. And again, but this is key, both Henry Luce back at the time um, made no bones about the fact that he was interpreting the news for readers who don't have time to read the yeah. papers. Um, and let's be clear, you know, the, the great charm of The Economist, and I personally, uh, I, I do think that I, and this is also one of those eternal things that everyone always says, The Economist was better X years ago. I, I'm, I'm reading The Economist less now, but what I've always appreciated about them is that they, they are very good at making you think that there's no veneer to what they're saying, but they are a freaking like, you know, somewhat right-leaning, pro-markets, 
internationalist publication. But if you read them, and that's the genius of their presentation, you're like, this is the most sensible, centrist, lulling thing, and this is the truth. You read The Economist in one week, you read that thing, and you feel like you have sort of a grasp of what's going around the world. That's a great product. Underlying it, however, is the truth that every single thing that is written is imbued with something. Now, again, I, I hear what you're saying, and there's this, this is part of this American mythology of, of, of the of the press as, as neutral arbiter rather than what I would prefer to be, which is be, you know, chase, chase, uh, malfeasance, chase, uh, illegality, chase, um, just grotesqueness and, and shine a light on it, you know? And of course, some will approach these things from the left. Some will approach it from the right. Um, there will be mistakes made. They, they're, they should be held accountable for facts. And I'm not saying that everything becomes an opinion paper. That's far from what I'm saying. Reporting still happens. Facts exist. Papers need to be held accountable. There is journalism that occurs. I'm just less worried about this because, because I do think that, that, that neutral American dream of the New York Times has been so unhelpful and has only been possible to exist because of the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay, I, I see that. I guess, I guess it never was really real, but at least there was, I, I guess what I'm missing is the good faith effort to understand viewpoints that differ from your own. At least the economists, like you knew it had a slant, but it, it wasn't trying to lie to you. It, it wasn't, it, it actually was trying to inform, even though it was a good faith effort to inform from a particular viewpoint. I don't think that is how I would describe the New York Times today. I don't think there is a good faith effort to actually inform people about different ways of looking at an issue. And so I guess what I'm saying is I don't, yeah, I just, I want people to try. I want there to be some effort. I, I don't want to feel like people are always spinning me and trying to convince me to look at look at things one way, you know, one worldview or the other. Anyway, that's, you know. Yeah. But um I guess the other thing too that that's sort of been bothering me as of late is this sense that and I guess Siegel gets gets at this a little bit in his piece, but I think you know various folks have been talking about it is that everything Americans seem to be perpetually fundamentalist about one thing or another. Like everyone's a fundamentalist about their pet issue or their pet worldview. Even centrists are fundamentalist about being centrist. Everyone has to take things to whatever the max expression is. And so people were pro, they were COVID fundamentalists and shaming people about that. Then they became, um, uh, protest fundamentalists shaming people, uh, you know, who didn't take the predominant line on that. And if someone brought up the fact that there was looting, that meant you were racist. And so you had to take this very extreme maximalist position, even though most Americans supported the general premise behind the protests, maybe not the full on ex expressions of, of some of them. So, I mean, why is it that like why can't we just take a step back and not be so intense about everything? And I feel like Twitter is this marketplace where everyone is acting out the maximalist position on whatever position they happen to have. And I guess that's what's really starting to grate at me that politics has become 
as, as I think you've, you've talked about, it's become this, everything is performance. Everything is symbolism. Everything is expression. Everything is maximalist rhetoric. No one can just chill. I'm even like in some ways a fundamentalist about not being a fundamentalist. Like I'm taking my position to whatever the maximalist endpoint is. You know, anyway, whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, like it's like we we're we always like Americans have to be religious in a sense yeah. about everything. No, no, no. That's that's where I was going to go with yeah, that. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, so. I keep coming back to, uh, again, I, uh, seems like Walter is going to be coming back. Walter Mead is going to be coming back again in, in this. But like, you know, the, the thing like working with Walter, uh, the years I have, and I'm still in touch with him. Um, it is that, it's that understanding that I think a lot of people miss about America is that like deep religiosity of it, that how much even secular America is religious. Like when you think about American secularism and you know, like, the displays of like clearly weird pagan ritual that are, uh, that are, um, yeah, this very performative stuff that you're talking about, about like, you know, signs of atonement and like moral, uh, cleansing, uh, that, that has been sort of marked a lot of these, these protests and, and the end results of it. Um, there is something kind of religious about it. Matt Continetti wrote a piece maybe about like a week ago to conservatives saying you make a big mistake if you, uh, mock this stuff and don't take it seriously on its own terms. It's very serious to the people who are doing it on quasi-religious terms is how you put it, you know, that, that like, just because it's not an organized religion, just because it's looks like pagan claptrap doesn't mean it's not religious. And that's, that is one of those things about America, I think. Um, you know, I think I remember during COVID you were, you were tweeting or maybe even writing in places that, you know, you're looking forward to the, uh, the next great awakening coming after COVID. Well, here, maybe it, this is it. This is the next great awakening. And, and, uh, uh, you know, so the other, the other thing I, I, I read this weekend, um, is, uh, Sir Walter Scott's Waverly. Mm, yeah. Uh, there was a great quote that you you uh, shared with me from that. Yeah, but that's 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 more about the the hero and and growing up and 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 maturity and and the death of romance. But the other part of that, like so, that's part of the book is this young guy going on this this um, uh, this adventure basically uh, and falling into all these sort of historical events and and how that plays out. But what it tells is uh, the the last spasms of. Um, basically, you know, a certain kind of, uh, old time Scottish independence that is tied to, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a religion, a faith, both also a kind of a way of life. And interestingly enough, it's the people that get driven out of Scotland that end up in the South. And most of the South's post-Civil War lost cause can actually be traced to the Scots and their lost cause around, around the Stuart monarchs. But that's an all, an interesting aside. Um, but it's interesting reading that book and how well he, I think, uh, portrays it. Uh, on the one hand, this is something that, uh, I think in, in the sort of Anglo countries is that, uh, a certain kind of public life 
is so intertwined with faith and belief and and these things in a way that on the continent it's not. Um, and I think that's something that Amer- that 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 both you know foreigners miss about America, but I think a lot of liberals miss about their own country. And that's why it's kind of funny to see a bunch of white liberals sitting around doing clearly religious rites uh, in atoning for sins. Um, and they're not aware that they're being religious. And I would wager all of them are, are atheists or agnostics or, or at best spirituals or nuns, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that to me. So again, you know, part of why I'm not more worked up about that is because it just seems to me it's, I mean, America is going through an intense period right now for sure, but it doesn't strike me as, um, uh, I don't know. I'm not that upset by it, I guess, is what it comes down to. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I've, I, I, I still don't find myself being particularly religious. As you know, that's something you and I discuss about on here is like why I have no faith. So I'm not moved by this. Uh, and maybe that's because I, I haven't, despite gaining my American citizenship, however many years ago and living here my whole life, I've still not become an American, a proper American. But, uh, yeah, that's just There's no such thing as a proper American. I think it's a proper American when you sit in on one of these things and atone for the for the sins of America. I think then you're a love proper that. American. We do love that. Yeah. Um the other thing Okay. Ah, what else is on your mind? I have other things if you want. So this gets so I, I the religion issue brings me and to another point. It probably deserves its own episode, but but maybe we can just tease it out here. And it goes back to my sense of my desire to to withdraw mm. from conflict, which is something we've talked about before, but I'm feeling it more and more. That and this is where I think, you know, Sir Walter Scott, Demir, you sent me, and I, I want to just share this with our with our dear listeners. Okay. I always wonder if I just read something over, if it's going to sound as great as it sounds when you just read, read it off the page, or in this case, my iPhone. Let me, let me, okay. Um, well, I'll just say it, whatever. Quote, unquote. He felt himself entitled to say firmly, though perhaps with a sigh, that the romance of his life was ended and that its real history had now commenced. He was soon called upon to justify his. That part's less. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's, that it's only that first sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I like that idea that you know you're, you. We start to get to an age where it's less about the novelty, the excitement, the romance of what's new. It's less about the ideological combat, or even the so-called, or even what counts as combat in our own personal lives and our relationships. We don't need the drama, the thrill, the ups and downs that we just want. We want something that feels and sounds and is different. And I wonder if I'm now entering into a phase in my life where it just, it's too much. There's this assault on the senses. It's a sensory overload. And if you have this sensory overload in all these different ways, there's just so much happening all the time Sometimes you just want to be bored. And I think that boredom has become more and more appealing to me to just be on your own, to retreat inward. I feel like this is becoming one of my more regular preoccupations. Ever since that, that essay in the Atlantic, basically, right? Yeah, I think that was the turning point. And I guess I can blame COVID on that 
that COVID, I think, really triggered something in me, this desire to retreat. Mm. And I'm, but, but every, but it, it hasn't ended. I thought maybe it would change or it wouldn't last, but I feel like it's, it's, it's staying somewhat constant. You know, you know, uh, I don't know if this will open up another can of worms or, or, or let us end, but, um, I, I've been thinking about that essay of yours and about Bernie in light of, uh, these Black Lives Matter protests, um, and basically the kind of political claims that have come with it. Um, it's the thing that, that I find, um, uh, well, I don't know, just interesting about watching all of this is, is how, uh, you know, I, I, I worry and think that the performative aspects of all the Black Lives Matter, um, and all the sort of, you know, signaling elements of it, which are, you know, can drive you either insane with sort of at the hypocrisy of it or insane at what it's doing to free speech or just annoy you because people are clearly, um, uh, you know, doing these rituals and it seems silly. Um, but I think more fundamentally, I think it's, it's, it's dangerous and counterproductive because I don't think it's going to do as much good as people think because people are preoccupied with this stuff. And it's striking to me that a lot of the stuff about when we talk about systemic racism, uh, that how bad of a frame that is for, I think, doing more because several articles have pointed this out, um, you know, I, I can't think of like the best one off the top of my head right now. Uh, but it's, it's that how much of, um, what's gone wrong for African Americans is also tied to generally to the, to basically how badly poor people do in our society. Now, this is not to say that there isn't something horribly wrong that African Americans of all groups end up getting trapped in the poverty cycle. This is not to say that there isn't racism. And if you want to say that that's systemic racism, that's fine. But the cure is not to raise awareness about racism and to, uh, obviously we want to become not racist, but that's not the solution. The solution is to, uh, address the fact that we have poverty that traps people in it that leads to cycles of the destruction of families of communities through drugs, through crime, through uh, a system that then gets people trapped in bad education because the way our education set up uh, is through property taxes rather than through something else. Or if you want to be right wing about it, we don't have enough charter schools or, or <laughs> you know, whatever. But in any case, the point is, is that it's it's a naughty problem that I think is better addressed through someone like Bernie and, um, and Liz Warren than through Black Lives Matter. Um, and all this awareness raising to me seems a pity. And it's, I've been thinking back to your essay, not in terms of what you were just saying about the return to normalcy, but in the sense that like Bernie was defeated. And in a way, all of the sort of energizing aspects of Bernie about, uh, you know, class injustice, if you want to talk about it in sort of more Marxist terms or, but just in general, the, the struggle, the inequality struggle, to put it more neutrally, let's say in this country, has now just burst forth again, more energetic, arguably, not arguably, definitely, 
like properties being destroyed in its name uh, than it ever was under Bernie. But unfortunately, I think in a way that's a lot less productive from a policy standpoint than if the American left and the American center embraced a more economic and class approach to these things. That's really, I think you're right. And maybe in, in some sense, like Bernie's ultimate failure affected me on some conscious, but also subconscious level that I, I think that I naturally found that appeal more compelling because there is something you can clearly, there's a lot more you can do about the inequality that is just built into the system that, that affects the, the majority of our population. But I feel like now it's about individuals being better and being less racist and being like, there's, there's something, there's something so unsatisfying about individuals trying to like read a book. They, they, they see that how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi is, is, um, is number three on the bestseller list or Robin D'Angelo. And they buy these books and they try to be better. They organize these reading groups, but ultimately this is about a cycle of poverty and, you know, I think Matt Taibbi was making this point in his, you know, controversial piece in his newsletter the other day that, you know, in some ways emphasizing, emphasizing this as, as only as being, as being primarily racial and not emphasizing the class and poverty issues, which are more universal that distracts us from from the actual ways we have to address these problems because when you're talking about a cycle of poverty there's not like it there isn't a way to address that that is only going to help black people it will also affect other poor people in some of these neighborhoods as well and it it can become a cross racial thing that builds unity and i and i worry that you know, there's something that seems like this is easy for upper class whites to get behind. I suspect that there's something almost self-serving about it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay, I guess we have to. I guess, I guess we, we have to our, meet up with our friend. Yeah. All right. On that note, I guess, um, any, uh, <laughs> fair enough, Shadi. I'll uh, I'll see you next time then. Okay. Bye, Amir. Right. Bye, bye. Later.